Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. of this church family and grateful for you. Uh, we've been on a, a break uh, from the book of Romans uh, for a bit now for the last couple of weeks and then today I'm, I'm often amazed at the providence of God. This message, um, this subject has been planned for some time, uh, not merely a reaction to the events uh, of this week, uh, but I am amazed at how this coincides with things that are happening, it happens to be um, on the very week that one of the most impactful events in 50 years in regard to the right to life uh, has occurred. Um, If you're aware of what's been going on in the news, a document uh, written by the Supreme Court Judge uh, Samuel Alito was leaked uh, to the public this week telling us that the current decision is that Roe versus Wade will be overturned and handed uh, back to the states. Uh, all, All over the nation, Um, Churches will be addressing these matters this weekend, one way or the other. We're going to take time this morning to look at where God's Word has to say, rejoice in God's truth, and groan um, over sin together. Let's look to Proverbs 24, 11 to 12 um, as as an opening passage that we're going to read. We're going to be in many places this morning, but see the words that are here and then we'll pray. Proverbs 24, beginning in verse 11. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we ask that as we consider your truths, we pray that you will help our hearts to respond rightly. Wherever our thinking is, wherever our actions are, we we ask, O Lord, that you will bring us along in growth. If there are any who are listening uh, to this message and they are not yet convinced that abortion is murder and that we are to preserve life, I pray that they will be convinced from your word. And, and Lord, any who agree but do not speak for fear, I ask God that you will give courage. Lord, I pray that you will help us to align ourselves in submission to you in our thoughts, Lord, and that we will, in a right kind of way, groan over evil that we see in our days. Father, we pray that you will bring about the preservation of life, and we ask God that you will show us your truth in in this time. So please send your spirit, give help. We need your help, oh God. Please bless our little ones in the next room. Please bless us here as we study, oh God. Help me to preach and all of us as we receive your truth, and we ask these things through the name of Christ. Amen. I've told you in the past about uh, Corey Ten Boom and her family, who were Christians living in their homeland of Holland during the uh, days of Hitler and his reign of terror, and how they 
hid Jews so that they would not be taken to concentration camps. And there eventually came a time that Corey and her family were arrested for their efforts and brought to a concentration camp that was established right there in Holland. They were brought to this concentration camp and lived in difficulty, but they believed, really believed, that the day would come that they would be released. And so when a day came that Corey and her sister and many others from that camp were loaded onto trains, they thought that it may be that this is the day of their deliverance. But they were horrified as through the the cracks in the boards on the train that they were loaded on, they began to watch the scenery and see that they were being shipped into the very heart of Germany. The concentration camp that they had just come from was awful. But life in the new concentration camp was even worse. They were regularly subjected to torture. They were treated with extreme cruelty by soldiers who found enjoyment. They were systematically being starved. Crimes against humanity occurring every single day. Masses were uh, executed on a regular uh, basis. Prisoners executed, women raped, Corey and her bunkmates only escaped sexual assault because of the fleas that infested their room. But one of the more disturbing parts that Corey recalls is that she found herself on a work crew that actually would uh, leave the confines of the concentration camp and go out into the community to work. And as they would go out, they would regularly encounter German citizens. And she says that repeatedly the German citizens all responded the same way again and again and again. The German citizens didn't stare, didn't gawk. In fact, Corey couldn't even get them to make eye contact with her. Consistently, they looked away. They refused to look at this atrocity that was happening right under their noses. They just wanted their lives to be unbothered. They just wanted to go to work, come home, live, and not deal with the reality that was happening in their own nation. They didn't want to get involved. Many of them, when they were pressed, didn't like what was happening, but still they looked the other way and remained silent. In the history of the world, over and over again, there have been scenarios just like this. If you study history, and we mean really study history, not the Reconstructionist versions, not the fairy tale versions, but really study history, you will find that genocides, mass murders, warlords terrorizing lands, political leaders executing opposing voices, the Aztecs and the Mayans sacrificing entire villages, Rome slaughtering uh, many thousands, Stalin drowning, executing, systematically starving citizens, senseless wars fueled by greed and lust for power, cartels laying waste to villages, Israel offering their children in fire to Molech, etc., 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 has happened in every generation in this broken and cursed world. Repeatedly over and over again, 
There is a something that is happening where innocent blood is shed. In Romans 3, there's a verse there that that quotes a verse from the Psalms that talks about how God looks down from heaven to see if there are any righteous, if there are any who seek for God. And he says that, behold, there, there are none. There is none who does good. There's not even one. And he begins to list off many sins that... Um, categorize humanity in general. And one of those that he mentions is humanity in general is swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. Do you remember being a new Christian and reading that verse for the first time? You may have even thought, this isn't how the world really is. This is, you know, this is not what I see. I look around and I don't see that kind of thing. But that, then you grow up and you learn more about the world. And there comes the realization that, yes, this is exactly what this world really is like. Mankind is swift to shed blood. And even amongst the masses that aren't doing the killing consistently, there is the looking the other way because getting involved gets complicated. We know what happens when people speak up against these things. In our day, at least in the Western world, the great bloodshed is the murder of the unborn. The last numbers that I checked, we are at over 60 million babies murdered in this one nation alone. That is a number that is hard to fathom. 60 million babies. Christian, there remains the need to defend the widows and the orphans. The need continues for us to work so that the needy have provision and are not trampled on. This is a broken and cursed world. When we open our eyes and see there are a thousand atrocities and we must not forget them. And when it comes to bloodshed specifically, this one here is the foremost of our day. And the great temptation is to do just what the German citizens did. Just look the other way. Just forget that it is happening. Just pretend it's not reality. But the people of God, made to be salt and light, as we live in evil days, part of how we live as the people of God being faithful is we are to speak. We're not to look the other way. We are to look heartache right in the face. And we are to strive to bring change. And so this message is an attempt for us to look to see what Scripture says and an attempt for the church to do what the church is called to do. The church is called to speak, to herald God's truths to each other, to our children, to the world, and don't forget also to the angels. The, the church's job is to announce the truth, whether it is convenient or inconvenient, whether what we say is popular or unpopular, the job of the church is to announce the truth. There's also a reality though, that when we look at particular sins and injustices and something like this, we're also supposed to 
grown together. There's something mentioned in the prophets that's very significant. There's this part where God is speaking to an angel and addresses the fact that he is about to bring judgment on the land, but he tells the angel, mark those who sigh, who groan over the evils of their day. Because groaning and sighing, and even within our own hearts, um, seeing uh, evil as it is, that is a way that we bring ourselves into submission to the will of God. That there are other ways that we are to act and to speak at times, but there are those times where there is nothing that we can be that can be done. We pray and we groan, and this aligns us with the will of God and. Sp- addresses the spirit of the age of our day. And so here's how we'll study this morning. I want to spend the bulk of our time laying out a biblical argument. If, if someone you know was to say, you know, does the Bible even really address this issue? Yes, and I want to show you how. So I'm going to lay out a biblical argument, and then we'll also spend a, a bit of time looking at an argument from nature and then end with a bit of application. So let's get started. Number one, I'm calling this one biblical foundations. The first place that we begin as we're going to uh, build this argument is where we have been for the last two weeks already. Genesis chapter 1. In verses 26 and 27, I'm going to read quite a few verses throughout today. You can find them if you're able to, but if not, I'll read them out loud. Genesis 1, 26 to 27, let's read it again. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see that language there? In creation, God says the humans have been made in the image of God. It's repeated like three times in those two verses. There are ways that we have been designed, formed, molded, created, instilled, and that are different than the animals. God has put his own likeness, his own resemblance onto and into us. We bear resemblance to God in all of the ways that make us uh, higher than the animals. In all of the ways that there is this distinction, God has given uh, human life to have uh, value, dignity, a sacredness uh, that exists as the one part of creation, the crowning work of creation that is made in his own likeness. You are not just an animal. Yeah, we have animal tendencies. There are ways that we have been made like them, but you are not just an animal. You have been made with a dignity, a value, and a sacredness that is higher than the animals, made in the image of God. Now, we're going to see this build, the strength build, as we keep going. Next, flip over to Genesis 4, if you will, please. And in between time, in Genesis 3... We see humanity falls, the curse comes upon the world, and there are 
There are ways, there are thousands of ways that this, this curse manifests itself. One of those being that we humans now are born with a nature that is natural to us where we lean away from God. There is a hostility within our hearts that is there even from, we're going to see the Bible show, from conception. We lean away from God and in this broken world, as the Bible begins to uh, show what happens in a broken world, in only the second generation we see the first bloodshed. We see the first time that a human's blood was shed. Cain murdered his brother Abel. Abel's innocent blood was shed. Now let me pause there for just a second, lest there be misunderstanding. When I use the word innocent there, I don't mean that Abel was sinless and he was innocent before the law of God on the day of judgment. All of us are sinners and we have guilt before him. But the Bible will use the word innocent and even the word good um, when it comes to relative kinds of ways. If you do not deserve the death penalty on earth, you are innocent in this way. Abel's innocent blood was shed. And then in chapter four, uh, look at verse 10 there and read a few verses with me. Verse 10, God speaks and he says this. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Now there are several things said there and they can be kind of confusing. What does it mean that Abel's blood was crying out? Well, that's figurative language, poetic kinds of language that speaks to the fact that the shedding of innocent blood of one made in the image of God is so repulsive to God that it is like their blood screams. God will not, indeed cannot in his holiness, let injustice go. He is righteous. He loves what is righteous. He hates what is unrighteous. He loves justice. He loves what is good. He hates what is unjust, what is not good. And God never lets injustice go unaddressed ultimately. And so the image of God is what gives life value, is what gives Abel's life value and why his blood cried out to God. You notice there's also a word spoken there about the land being cursed. Well, what, is, what does this mean? Well, just kind of hang on to it there. And we're going to see this, this idea developed as we keep going through the Bible. Uh, next, go, go over to Genesis 9. G Genesis 9 is the account of when Noah and his family step off of the ark. When they step off of the ark, it was a kind of new creation. It's not the ultimate new creation that we're waiting for, but it was a kind of new creation. The wicked had been judged. Noah and his family had been saved out of that judgment, not because they were uh, sinless, not because they were perfect. They were saved out of the judgment because God showed them grace 
And why did God show them grace? What was the basis? The basis is faith. They believed in God. They were not perfect. They did not deserve it. But God gave them grace on the basis of faith. You see the connection to the gospel there. We are all facing judgment. We will go there unless God gives the grace of saving us from that judgment. And the basis of that is faith. So we have all of that pictured there. And when Noah steps and his family step off of the ark, uh, God gives them a number of instructions. And those instructions pertained to here's how to live in this new kind of creation. And here is one of the verses that is given. And in verse 6... Notice that God says this, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So notice that there's a command and then there is a basis for the command. The command that God gives there was that if innocent blood was shed of an image bearer, then earthly justice was to be carried out, indeed is to be carried out. This is a principle that remains through the ages. God commands that if if a person murders another, humans are to execute justice and put the murderer to death. And then you notice that there's a basis for why. Why is that the case? The basis is because humans have been made in the image of God. There's a reason why, and God even addresses it as Noah and his family are stepping off the ark. There's a reason why God allowed the killing of animals, but the killing of an innocent image bearer is called murder. What's the difference? The difference is the value, the sacredness, and the dignity of human life made in the image of God. As we continue to see this unfold in Scripture, we think of the law bunch of places in the law that we could look to. You know Exodus 20, verse 13, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Uh, by, by, the, by the way, another kind of parenthesis, lest there be misunderstanding, the correct word is murder and not kill. Okay, that is the Hebrew word that is there. Um, and the reason why that matters um, is because, like we've already seen in Genesis 9, um, there, God shows there is a time to kill. God is the one who directs when that time is. Self-defense, in a just war, and when there is a punishment uh, that deserves it from a crime that is committed and God is the one who tells us which crimes those are, like Genesis 9, 6, directing this. So you shall not murder. And the reason why the command is given, the whole basis is the value of human life. Now go with me to the book of Numbers, please. Numbers chapter 35 there's a longer passage here that I'm going to kind of walk you through. I'm going to start in verse 9 and explain to you what's happening here. So Israel's still in the wilderness and they not come into uh, the promised land yet, but they're getting close and God gives instructions about life in the promised land. Remember God formed a nation and they needed civil law. They needed case law. And there are some provisions that God made and here is one of them. Verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge 
that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. The city shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger so that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. Here's what happens. God tells them before they ever even come that they were to pick 48 cities and the cities were to be the cities of the Levites, the cities of the priest. And uh, six of those cities were to be what were called cities of refuge. So that if a person accidentally killed another, meaning it was unintentional, this is a broken, cursed world and those kinds of accidents do happen. And someone was killed unintentionally, it was not murder, he calls it manslaughter. There's a reason why today we have a difference in those laws that comes from the scripture there. And if someone accidentally killed another person, then they were to go to the city of refuge and they were to stay there to await trial. The trial would partly be, was it on purpose or was it accidental? Okay, God gives uh, directions for how the trial was supposed to happen. Many of the principles we have today for courtroom hearings come right out of the law. Witnesses, evidence, God addresses all of that in Numbers 35. If it was determined that the person killed accidentally, then the person was not put to death as a murderer, but they were to stay in the city of refuge for a period of time until the death of the high priest. But continue on. In verses 13 down to 24, God gives some discussion for, here's the difference between murder and manslaughter. Starting in verse 25, uh, God gives some directions for how the, the, the trial was to proceed only on the evidence of witnesses, etc. All of this is laid out. God was very clear that this was not to be done haphazardly. Great care was to be taken. There's a lot of instruction. Why all of the instruction? Why this big of a deal? It's because of the last two verses. Look at verses 33 and 34. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. God says that when innocent blood is shed, it defiles the land. It pollutes the land. Remember, we saw back there with Abel, the voice of the blood cries out to God. In God's eyes, he is angered. He is grieved. The land is defiled. God commands for justice to be executed. Listen, this is another one of those places that sometimes people misunderstand what the Bible says. Justice is a good thing. God loves righteousness. God loves justice. Justice is a good thing. We know that there is grace and mercy that God teaches as well. And we're shown ways that that even makes its way into courts and such. But don't ever fall for the idea that Jesus somehow undid justice. No, justice is to be uh, executed. In fact, it's a basic principle of love for neighbor. L love your neighbor by standing up for justice. If your neighbor's car is stolen, you're not loving your neighbor by saying it would hurt the feelings if the guy was arrested, so let's just forget it happened. That's not loving your neighbor. 
Love for neighbor means that justice must be executed. This is a good thing. And God says specifically when it comes to murder, innocent blood shed of an image bearer, there can be no expiation except the blood of the perpetrator himself. There is a kind of restitution, a kind of balance that is attained. And if justice is not done, the land becomes polluted, defiled in the eyes of God. And the basis of it all, the basis for the why behind it, is the value of human life. It is the sacredness. It is the dignity, the weight of one human image bearer. One. There's a sacredness to human life. And, and so do you see the point of all this all? Human life has dignity, so much value to it that God says when even one is shed, that their blood cries out to God from the ground. Christian, there's a pretty big groaning and grieving that we need to give in understanding these things. 60 million voices crying to heaven. 60 million voices, image bearers, image bearers of the living God. The land is defiled. There's a reason why we take this as a big deal. This is not a small infraction. In fact, if you look over to Leviticus 20 with me, in Leviticus 20, starting in verse 1 there, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the alien sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech. And let me pause there and just a little cultural thing happening there in those days. One of the idols, one of the false gods of their day was one named Molech. And the way that it was taught that you worship Molech, the ultimate worship was to offer one of your children as a sacrifice in fire. God says, shall surely be put to death. Anybody who does this shall be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Molech so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Molech. By the way, one thing to note, we say all the time, there's nothing new under the sun. Satan over and over again recycles old things and finds a way to, new pa to package them in a new way for a new generation. He has been finding ways to kill babies from the book of Genesis. He loves it because of the value of human life. And the reality of this sacredness goes even further in the New Testament. In the book of James, we're told that because humans are made in the image of God, that's why we're not even to curse another person. We're not to slander. We're not to gossip. We're not to hold hatred 
for another person because this is an image bearer created in the very resemblance of God. Now, upon hearing all of that, somebody could say, well, that's all well and good, but that doesn't speak to abortion because abortion isn't actually killing a person. So here's the second part of the argument. The Bible shows that a child has the sanctity of being made in the image of God from the womb and from conception. Let, let me show you uh, four passages uh, to demonstrate this. Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. Numerous places in the law that we could look to. I think this is a very critical one. Exodus 21, starting in verse 22. I'm going to read. We're told this. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him and he shall pay as the judges decide. Verse 23. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. One of the biggest principles that comes out of the whole law is this explanation of justice. Justice is when the punishment matches the crime. When the punishment matches the crime. Now, another just kind of parenthesis here, only because if the waters get muddied, we won't see the main point there. Another way that sometimes people misunderstand the Bible, they think Jesus undid all justice in the New Testament when he said, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. And whoever slaps you on the right cheek, let him have the other also. Jesus was not undoing justice in society. He was a addressing ways they had twisted the scriptures for personal vengeance. Over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and he quotes Old Testament scripture, and then he addresses a way they had twisted the scripture. He also says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. That's scripture. <laughs> he didn't undo that. But then he added in the part where they had twisted and hate your enemy. The Bible never said that. They twisted the Bible in that way. And the same thing happens here. The, the, the Jews over the course of time had taken principles of the law, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and they had applied it to personal vengeance. You call me stupid, I'm gonna call you back. You, you, you insult me by slapping me on the cheek, I'm gonna slap you back. Jesus said that's not a legitimate use of the law, but he wasn't undoing justice in society, but rather ways they had twisted it. Now back to Exodus. Look how this is addressed though. The very principle that punishment is to match the crime comes in response to what happens if a woman is carrying an unborn baby. There is a reason why if the child dies, the perpetrator is to die. Life for life, wound for wound. The perpetrator would receive the death penalty. It's because the child is made in the image of God from the womb. In Psalm 51, 
David confessed his sin in a prayer of repentance. And he says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. So he says, even at birth, I was in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Meaning, David was recognizing the fact that he was a sinner even from the womb, even from conception. But do you see what this means? David's not preaching uh, the right to life there, but do you see what it says about the subject? David was a person from conception. David called himself I and me from conception. He spoke of himself as alive from conception and a person. Look over to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, starting in verse 13. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them in the womb. God knits the child together. The child is a person, formed, woven, created, knit together in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. And then Jeremiah 1.5 says, God speaks to Jeremiah on the day he called him as a prophet and said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. God speaks of the unborn child as a person a person made in the image of God. So follow the argument so far, here would be a summary. Humans are made in the image of God. We're shown this by what happens if human life is taken. And unborn babies are made in the image of God from the womb. There's a therefore, if this, then this, therefore, this. Therefore, the killing of an unborn child is an act of murder. <coughs> now, here's, here's the third part of the argument. The third part is essentially this. God is grieved when the helpless are harmed, and he is angry with those who do such things. There's a word study, Christian, I, I, I commend to you, one that will help your heart tremendously to grow compassion in pity. It's a word study on all of the times that the Bible uses words like orphan, widow, helpless, destitute, lame, forgotten, oppressed, etc. It's incredibly moving because God addresses this over and over and over again and you really get an understanding of the heart of God. The, the heart of God, that he, he cares for the helpless. I've got a number of passages here that I'm going to rattle off very quickly. Uh, too quick for you to turn there unless you are really good. Um, but you may just jot some of the references down. But let me rattle some of these off here. Psalm 68, verses 5 through 6. A father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. 
He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Psalm 146, six through nine. It's speaking of the Lord who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. He thwarts the way of the wicked. Psalm 10, verse 14. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Hosea 14, 3. For in you the orphan finds mercy. Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 20. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So, so show your love for the alien for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Now, little application of that last one to us Christians in a new covenant. You were not uh, living as slaves in the land of Egypt, but here's how Ephesians 2 applies that principle to us. You and I were strangers and aliens to the kingdom of God strangers and aliens to the promises and to salvation itself. And there's a principle that comes. You and I, let me say, especially as Gentiles brought into this kingdom by grace, you and I, strangers and aliens, outsiders, shown grace by God, are to be people who show love and grace and patience and care to other outsiders for this very principle. Exodus 22 You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Leviticus 19, you shall not curse a deaf man, but you shall revere the Lord your God. That that, that one there, you you do realize some of the point. To curse a, a deaf man, he wouldn't know if he were cursed. Why are you not to do it? You shall revere the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 14, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who live in your towns shall come to you and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you. Deuteronomy 24, you shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless, nor shall you take a widow's garment in pledge. Also Deuteronomy 24, God told them when they harvested their fields, they were not to harvest all the way up to the edges. They were to on purpose leave food in the fields. And he says, it's for the orphan, the widow, uh, the the sojourner, the foreigner, the, the needy in your land. Deuteronomy 26, when you give your tithes and offerings, you are also to give to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow that they may eat and be filled. Deuteronomy 27, cursed be anyone who perverts justice due to the sojourner, the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. The theme is this. God says, I care for the fatherless, so you go care for him. I give justice to the widow. You make sure you stand up and give justice to the widows. I care for the, a- the alien, the stranger, the foreigner, the sojourner. Therefore, you show them kindness. I care for the afflicted, the helpless, the forgotten. Therefore, you care for the helpless. Feed them, house them, clothe them. 
The consistent theme is this is the heart of God. Therefore, it is to be the heart of God's people. Jesus applied this same principle in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember that part where he says, our father in heaven causes his sun to shine and his rain to fall on the just and the unjust, meaning even to God's enemies, he gives grace. We are to be like our father in heaven and we are to show grace to our enemies to imitate him. Well, applying this principle, God cares for the helpless. We are to care for the helpless. And God has a zeal that these things be done. This zeal is part of the reason why in Ezekiel 16 verses 20 and 21, God in looking back on Israel's history, and talking about their idolatry and sins, he says this, Ezekiel 16, 20 and 21, moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had born to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotry so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. It is a significant thing there when God says, you killed my babies. You killed my children. And yes, objectively speaking, there is a way that that would apply to Israel in a special kind of way, but there is still a principle. There is still a principle. God loves the helpless. He cares for the hurting. The heart of God is to be our heart as well. And this is the basis for why in Proverbs 31 verses 8 through 9, these words are spoken. Scripture says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. And then hear the words of our opening passage again. Deuteronomy, excuse me, Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did, we did not know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts and does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? The word of God is abundantly clear. Humans are made in the image of God. A baby is a person from the womb, from conception. And the heart of God is for the helpless and the hurting. And therefore it is to be ours as well. The word of God is abundantly clear on this matter. But here's the next very brief point that I'll cover just quickly. We can also say nature is too. The word of God is abundantly clear and nature is too. Point number two is even nature shows this. I think this point is significant as we are uh, speaking to the lost world around us. John Piper famously wrote an article that I'd encourage you to get familiar with. And the article is called, We Know They Are Killing Children. We all know. He starts off the article by addressing the fact that the more that we know something to be wrong, the more guilt there is, when it is when it is violated, the knowledge that we have. And he points out ways that we all know. 
that we can observe the world and see we all know this is a baby. And he's primarily giving arguments from nature. He gives a whole list. Let me just rattle off quickly eight of them. Eight. Number one, even abortion doctors admit they are killing children. That did not used to be the case. Do you remember two decades ago when the big argument was, it's not really a baby, it's just a clump of cells, it's not really a human? That argument has now fallen, okay? Some of that because of modern technology of being able to see babies in the womb and other things. But the reality is that even abortion doctors now readily admit they are killing children. They're no longer hiding it in obscure language, but they claim it would be more evil if a woman didn't have this right. But even the abortion doctors admit this. By the way, you may point out when you hear that language of my right, no one has a right to murder. Number two, in 38 states, killing an unborn child anywhere but an abortion facility is homicide. Meaning this, if a man stabs a pregnant woman and the baby dies, but the mother lives, he is charged with Murder. Why? Because we know it's a person. Number three, at a hospital, doctors will perform surgery on unborn babies as young as 22 weeks old. But then just down the street, a baby even older will be killed. If we perform surgeries on a baby to keep them alive, we know they are babies and we know they are alive. Number four, size is not a determination of personhood. A tall man is not more human or more of a person than a short man. A baby does not lack personhood because of his or her size. Number five, not having the ability to reason does not mean a baby is not a real person. Consider those who are in a coma. They're still a person. They do not lose this. Number six, location does not determine personhood. Someone is not more of a person if they live up, down, left, right, this state, that state, that country, this country, let alone the few inches of difference between a baby that is in a womb and then the baby freshly born laid on top of the womb. Location does not determine personhood. Number seven, being dependent on a mother does not mean a baby is not a person. If a 50 year old woman is on a ventilator battling COVID and dependent on this care, she does not cease to be a person. She's not less of a person because of dependence. And number eight, we've seen the photographs of the babies in the womb. We see them. We see them smile, suck their thumb, wiggle their toes. We know this is a baby. You know, what, why is it the law that in many states that aborted babies must be given a proper burial? That's, that's law. Why, why is that the case? If it's just a clump of cells, you know, if I get cancer and surgery removes the cancer, they don't give that tissue a proper burial. Why the proper burial? Because this is a person and we all know it. And see, we got we to gotta understand there, um, what society does is not a determination of what uh, is and what ought to be. But one of the things we can do there is say, even your own laws contradict the reality. Now, let me say just a brief word of application. Christian, we cannot live as the German citizens who just looked away. It is very possible 
to just drift into a way of living where we just kind of forget. I, I know this is the case in my own heart that you can just get so involved in what's happening in your life that you just forget that there are atrocities that are happening. Part of what it means to be the people of God on the earth and to have the same heart that our Father has is that we, we, we're not to forget. And, and this goes for atro the thousand atrocities across the board. We're not to forget. We can't carry on with life as though babies aren't actually being murdered. It's happening. We cannot forget. We must regularly speak truth. We cannot develop a just go along to get along attitude that I don't want controversy, so I'm gonna stay quiet. We can't stay quiet. We must pray. I don't know about you, but it's easy to forget about these things in prayer. I don't know how you pray. If you have a list, make it one of your items. Pray that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. Pray further than that as well though. Pray for God to raise up uh, people to adopt and foster. And that is next. If Roe versus Wade is overturned and it's handed back over to the states and if Indiana would become a place where abortion was outlawed, we pray so, it is the reality that some people would just drive farther distance to go kill their babies. We're pretty sure Illinois will stay open. And so still people will go to kill their babies just somewhere else. But it's, we also have to know that it would still be a victory. It would be a major victory to live in a place that aligned its laws more closely with the law of God. That is still a victory and we need to know that when it comes even if nothing else to judgment from God. But there's also the reality that if abortion would be outlawed in Indiana, it is likely the case that there will be more babies who need adopted and cared for. And the call of the church is to rise up. The call of the church is to step up. Right now, on average, more than 40 babies are murdered from Dubois County, alone each year. So if there are more babies that need adopted, the need is for the people of God to step up. You know, Christian, there are times that it doesn't matter what your gifts are. It's triage. Four buses collide and there are bleeding people laying in the streets. It doesn't matter what your gifts are. Grab gauze and stop the bleeding. There are times where there are needs so great, it doesn't matter whether it is financially convenient and what's happening in life and whether we think that, that, that this is exactly where my gifts are, there are needs that are there and we must step up and address them. And I would be willing to bet that the CASA workers and other kinds of volunteers in our church family would say, the need is there now and we must answer and then consider how all of this connects to the matter of greatest significance, the gospel and the kingdom of God. You know, these, these things, these tough subjects that we've discussed the last few weeks is where a, a great deal of the most opposition to the word of God is aimed when it comes to this day. Don't forget that Jesus said it would be like this. And let's not be surprised. 
Jesus said the ways of the world, the thinking of the world, the behavior of the world, it will be different than the rule of Christ. But what we as the people of God are to do is that we are to strive and work so that we make our homes and as much influence as we can in the communities around us to look like the kingdom of God. For there to be the order in the kingdom of God, there are not hungry people. So within uh, our communities, we are to work so that that does not happen. Remember that line where Jesus told us to pray for the kingdom of God to come and, the, and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our call is to try to strive so that we, we make as much of the earth as possible look like heaven and obey the law of God. So we work for these things. And when it comes to how we think of these subjects and this one in particular, it is important that we align ourselves in submission to the word of God. True saving faith is a faith that submits to the rule of God. You remember the point that James makes? Even the demons believe. They have a kind of faith, but it's not a saving faith. They do not have a friendly heart towards God, though they recognize facts. True saving faith is a faith that embraces Jesus as Lord, one with authority and the right to give law and demand. It is a big deal how we think on these things and if we will submit ourselves. If all of the world is saying a message that contradicts the word of God, it's a test of faith. Who do you listen to? Who do you trust? If you have never turned to Christ in a way that you really treat him like he is Lord, and you say, I I'm going to listen to him and not the voices of the world, you need to turn to Christ like that. You need to be saved. You must be saved. You must look to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but you must also see that he is Lord and the one with authority. Turn to Christ. Believe in his name and be saved. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we cry out to you brokenhearted over the many atrocities in this broken world. Lord, we ask that you will give relief. We pray, Lord, raise us up as laborers. Raise up more laborers for the harvest to mend the brokenhearted, to feed the hungry, to care for the widow and the orphan, to adopt and foster uh, th those who are in need and to speak up for the unborn. We pray, O oh God, use us. Use us as your hands and feet in this world. We do ask, O oh God, that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. We ask, O oh God, that you would save the lives of unborn. And we pray, Lord, that you will use us in the work of caring for souls. Give us help, O oh Lord. Bless us as, as each one of us thinks through how are we individually supposed to contribute and serve in these ways, O oh God. Please use us. Please raise us up and bless us. We pray your grace on us as we dismiss. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you. Dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at True Vine IND. 
or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.